This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, Paisani. I'm John Viola, and you're listening to the Italian American Podcast. We hope everybody's home, safe and sound, and you and your loved ones are doing well in this difficult time. This week, we're bringing you part one of a two-part series that is an answer to a lot of questions we've gotten from our listeners about the immigration to the United States from North and Central Italy. I know the show's a little bit uh, Southern-leaning, but we wanted to make sure we gave a little bit of love to the sons and daughters of Northern Italy here in the United States. So hopefully if you and your parentage is from the North, or if you're just a fan of the show who's looking to learn something new, you'll enjoy these episodes. Just want to point out that during the time of quarantine, we're doing our best to keep the sound quality as high as possible by recording online, but some parts of these next two episodes are not exactly what we'd like them to be. So hopefully you'll bear with us and just know that we're trying to make sure that every week we can put out a little slice of the Italian-American life so you and yours can get a little bit of time in familia and forget for a little bit the craziness surrounding us. So we hope you enjoy these two special episodes, and thanks for listening to the Italian-American Podcast. See that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I am your moderator, John Viola, and very happy to be here today through the wonders of digital media with two of my best buddies, Rosella Rago and Pat O'Boyle. And we are joined by a really dear friend of mine, like a big brother. He is a man that I have spent a lot of time with traveling all over the globe. He defines the term hardcore Italian. And he's here today, not just because he's my pal, but because he is one of the most proud and well-versed Northern Italians that I know, Northern Italian Americans, I should say. So my dear friend, all of our dear friend, Mr. Robert Allegrini, welcome to a very special two-part episode today. Thank you so much, John. I'm very happy to be here uh, representing two-thirds of the uh, country of Italy at this point. (laughs) <laughs> we had to get somebody. I felt that. I felt that. Ow! Well, North and Central. Oh, oh, it wasn't meant to be a slam, my friend. <laughs> Hold on. Before this continues, let's agree there is no Central Italy. <laughs> yes, that's fine. That's if you want to give North and South uh, Rome up, is fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's cool. You take Rome up. Well, you know what? Give us Southern Lazio, which belongs to Campania, which was robbed from us. They don't want to be in Lazio. They want to be with us. They shaved off part of Abruzzo. Give that to Lazio. Give that to us. 
You can take Rome and Marque all the way up, and then we'll, we'll <laughs> deal. Well, if you haven't picked up on it already, we are here to discuss a topic that has come up a lot from our audience, which is the northern and central, or northern in Pat's uh, definition, immigration from Italy to the United States. Because, you know, 87% of the Italian-American diaspora being southern Italian. But the truth of the matter is, there's a significant population with roots in the northern part of the country. They have a rich and long history here. And we want to make sure that we're representing the full history. And it's really fascinating history. And some of it we're going to dig more deeply into in future episodes, hyper-specifically, some of the eminent biographies, great accomplishments, interesting stories and communities. But we wanted to give a broad overview. And so this two-part episode is going to kind of cover that history and familiarize you with some of the interesting people, some of the interesting stories, and some of the communities uh, and enclaves that still exist today from northern and central Italy here in the United States. So, Robert, thank you for coming into the den of the lion and being with us here on the show that has been accused of too much southernism on more than one occasion. Uh, We really appreciate it. Well, I I am a big fan of the show, uh, including all of its southernism. I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm sure the rest of your audience has as well, and hopefully they'll learn a little bit more today. So, Robert is uh, really someone that would get the definition of kind of professional Italian-American. He's a member of leadership in every organization. He's at every event. He's uh, very, very well-versed. He is also the honorary counsel of the Republic of San Marino to Chicago. So that's a really interesting piece to add here because San Marino obviously is a unique anomaly in the Italian unification. This tiny republic that survived independently remains independent and sovereign today and has a nice little population here in the United States. It does indeed. Actually, uh, has its own uh, consulate for many years in Detroit, where there is the largest concentration of San Marinese, uh, about 3,000. Also, a significant community on hold in New York as well. So it's going to be interesting to kind of hit on some of those places, but we definitely need to start at the beginning. First and foremost, I think it's important to establish for our audience, you know, we've talked so much about Southern history. And I think that for me, the fundamental difference between the history of Northern Italy and the history of Southern Italy. And if we take Pat's definition and work from there, if Rome and the Papal States sort of separate the peninsula, Northern Italy has a much different history than the South. The South has been, until unification, a unified kingdom, essentially, with the split between the mainland part of the peninsula and the island of Sicily coming later. But really, from the Norman period in 1130 and even before, when the Normans conquest began, it was a unified kingdom. Northern Italy, and when we say central, I kind of mean, you know, Tuscany and Umbria, has a much deeper history of more uh, city-states or independent kingdoms or dukedoms. So its history is far more separated than the South. Is that fair to say? It is certainly fair to say. I mean, all you have to do is look at a a map of uh, pre-unification Italy. You see the the large uh, kingdom of two Sicilies in the south, and then you see a number of small uh, nation states in the north dominated by Piemonte, which then became the kingdom of Sardinia with the unity between Sardinia and Piemonte, which was the driving force behind the Sorgimento, which basically absorbed eventually all of the other northern Italian states and, of course, much to John's uh, displeasure, the kingdom of the Sicilies <laughs> as well. And it's interesting, too, because you can look at the northern states and see dukedoms and 
larger kingdoms, like you say, you know, the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, which over the years spread out from what's now really the French province of Savoy, and then into eventually Genova and the island of Sardinia. But go further back, you have the history of Genoa as an independent republic, to which Corsica was tied for so, so many years. You have the states around uh, Milan. I mean, look at Tuscany and Pisa as an independent place, Lucca as an independent place. There's such a deep history of city-state and a concept of citizenship as opposed to being subject to a king. And I, I think that's really, to me, the definitive difference between the two parts of the country and how people came to this country and identified with the American spirit of sort of go out and participate civically. Civic participation meant a much different thing to many in the North than it did in the South. I, I think you're spot on, and it shows in the early Italian immigrants in the United States and, and what they were able to achieve and how quickly they were able to be absorbed into the mainstream of American life. Let's start from the beginning of our entire experiment here on this continent. And we've talked about it a lot. And obviously, you know, the Columbus Day being a topic of conversation that, frankly, I've had enough of until next October, I can tell you that much. (laughs) But, you know, we start with the Genovese explorer who, however you want to define it, begins the connectivity between these two continents that leads to permanent to permanent interaction, right? He, he uh, people hate the word discover, but he, he creates a whole new world, the Columbian exchange. But at the beginning of our story are a significant number of Northern Italian explorers, navigators, pioneers, settlers. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you, you start with Columbus, but then you go to Vespucci, uh, for whom the uh, hemisphere was named, and then to uh, Verrazano, and uh, certainly to John Cabot, who was really Giovanni Caboto. These were all Northern Italian explorers uh, serving regrettably under the service of other countries, because, of course, there was no Italy and their own countries, be they, you know, Venice or, or Tuscany, were small sovereign states that didn't have the capacity at the time to fund expeditions as did England or Spain. Probably because of the limitations of these nation states or these city states, we make this grand appearance at the beginning of the American story through exploration. And then we sort of don't pop up in significant numbers, really, if you're doing a broad history of the U.S., till after the Civil War. But it's the period between the Columbian Exchange beginning in 1492 and 1860 in the Civil War. You can really define the Italian-American experience there as primarily a Northern Italian one. And I think it's underrepresented just how many Northerners did participate in major exploration, particularly the discoveries out West. I mean, give us a little broad stroke. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it it starts, I think, in uh, 1635, which is when the first Italian immigrant arrives in New York. A Venetian by the name of Pietro Alberti uh, was uh, first in uh, New York in 1635, having fled from Venice. Why? Because of a plague, appropriately enough, the (laughs) bubonic plague, uh, which at that time had decimated a third of Venice's population. So he hopped on a Dutch ship and uh, landed in New Amsterdam. 
and spent uh, the rest of his life in the New York, New Jersey area until, unfortunately, he and his wife were both killed in an Indian raid in the latter part of the 1600s. Wow. So he was the first of many to follow. But uh, you know, by the 1850s, there was already a significant Italian population in New York that had achieved a great deal. And what really brought a lot of Italians to the United States and to the west of the United States was the gold rush, California gold rush in 1849. Few people know that by 1851, only a year after California had become a state, there were already 6,000 Italians in California. So you have uh, Italian Californians like Domenico Ghiradelli, who founded the Chocolate Empire, who arrived right in 1849. You have the parents of A.P. Giannini, who went on to start uh, the Bank of Italy, which of course became the Bank of America. His parents also arrived in 1849. So by the time Giannini was born in 1870, he was already a second generation Italian American. So wow. there was a large influx of, uh, of Italians that had arrived in the United States even prior to the Civil War. You know, we talk a lot about why Italians left in such significant numbers when they did. And, and if you break that down from a regional perspective, post-unification, you have the South, which was, as a net exporter of humans, one of the lowest numbers in Europe driving into, you know, essentially about a third of the population coming to the New World. But the North, in the years that we're talking about between the founding of the country and the Risorgimento, sent a significant population here throughout the country. What were the reasons that Northerners were leaving before the unification? Well, a lot of them were simply adventurers, uh, certainly those that went west California for the gold rush were such. A lot of them were political refugees. You know, you can go back to Filippo Mazzei at the time of the revolution, who is the Tuscan who inspired Jefferson to insert into the Declaration of Independence the phrase, all men are created equal. So there was this small cadre of adventurers, as I like to call them, that went for different reasons. You know, Mazzei went to start a large plantation in the New World. It wasn't always dire economic need that drove them, although that was certainly a part of it for a portion of them. But they were, generally speaking, a little bit better off and could afford the cost of the trip at that time, which was not insubstantial, to be able to make that crossing into North America. Metzei is an interesting character and one that I think I'd like to give a little bit more specific attention to in his own episodes, because... You're talking about someone who, first and foremost, is a Tuscan immigrant to the United States, goes down to Virginia, really becomes one of Jefferson's best friends and closest confidants, introduces the industry around wine to the United States, and you can actually go to what's left of the house that he lived in in Virginia today, and it's still a functioning winery, and you can still drink from essentially the remains of his original vines. He's integral in Jefferson's private book collection, which becomes the foundation of the Library of Congress. And as you say, he is the inspiration in his writings and in their conversations for the idea that all men are created equal in our founding documents. This is a history that I think gets really overlooked. And you're talking about really a founding father here. Is there any sort of sense from Italy of his role in this? You don't hear about him much, even in Italy. 
I think because of his key role in what became a fundamental principle of being an American, the, the acceptance of the fact that all men are created equal, I think he has greater significance here than he does in Italy. But they're certainly aware of what he meant to the United States in, in Italy as well, I think, especially in Tuscany, where he's from. When you think Filippo Mazzei had such an impact on who the United States is as a nation, you think it would be a much better received concept in Italy because the stuff that he championed, the, the concept that all men are created equal, I find if you ask Italians what do they, what do they kind of admire about the U.S.? You know, they'll go off about the food and people don't dress well and, you know, you have a cappuccino four o'clock in the afternoon, you savage. But the thing I find that Italians kind of love about America is the concept of the meritocracy, which is non-existent in Italy to a great extent. And that egalitarian concept is so Filippo Mazzei. And I just feel that it's almost like the Italians are like, oh, no, no, we could never come up with that concept. It has to be Anglo-Saxon. You know, it's kind of like something they kind of impute on the Anglo-Saxon mind. That's just my take. Well, and, and I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. You know, I, I think that, sadly, a large portion of the Italian population is ignorant of their own history, let alone um, the history of the United States. And, and that we can do a whole episode as to the reasons why that's the case in Italy, because they're certainly a smart people, but they have not been taught history well, at least in the last half century, as far as I'm concerned. But I do think that amongst at least a very educated class of, of Italians, there is an admiration for uh, what Matze meant um, and the concept that he's inspired in the entire world. But I don't disagree with your basic premise. There, there's certainly a, a love of what the Anglo-Saxon world has meant to the United States uh, and Italy, even if that means downplaying some of their own contributions to that world. Well, I think um, Italy, even today, like just can't get past the unofficial class system that exists. I mean, there is still very much this idea that like, you know, signori si nasce and uh, you are born to be a certain thing and you cannot go outside the certain borders that you were born into. And, you know, America has the, the, our fundamentals are you can be whatever you want, whoever you want. And even if you're born in poverty, you can still have this Cinderella story throughout your life. And, you know, to Italians, it's just different, especially when my cousins were moving to the North to get jobs from Puglia they were very much trying to break out of this mindset that you had to be raccomandato to do well. You had like the raccomandazione was going to govern your life and your future very much. So um, I think it's something about America that they admire, although America has its own version of this that Italians, I don't think fully understand at all. But um, I think that very much drove immigration, and it still does. I mean, you have people that, that immigrate to America because of the American dream that they believe that they're not afforded in Italy, North or South. Yeah, I think that's all very true. Absolutely. I also think part of the issue with even recognizing our contribution before the Civil War, before the Great Migration of you know 1890 to 1920, Obviously, it's easier for us to relate to history when we're here in significant numbers as a community. But I do also think part of the problem is you have Italians here playing significant roles. Like, for example, right, Francesco Vigo. Yes, who, who 
Giovanni Schiavo, who wrote uh, the, the great uh, yes. Giovanni Schiavo, who wrote four centuries of Italian-American history, has said of Vigo that we probably would not even have the northern states of Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan as part of the United States. They would be part of Canada if not for the exploits of Vigo during the uh, American Revolutionary War. So. Yes, we've played a role since the very beginning. Yeah, and as a significant financier of a lot of the Revolutionary War. Yes. And you think about the fact that Lafayette is celebrated as an American hero. Pulaski is celebrated as an American hero. I often think part of the problem is because we globally did not have a sense of Italianness until the Risorgimento, these figures get kind of lost in the story because there was not a mother country of significant size and resource to champion their role, to participate with them or, or in memorializing them after. And it's unfortunate. And they were all, you know, serving under foreign flags, which didn't help the matter uh, either. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Enrico Tonti, who explored much of the uh, central part of the um, United States, never gets mentioned as being one of the great discoverers, although he certainly was and was very much an Italian. But they changed his name from uh, Enrico to Henri. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, they, they can't change his, uh, his surname. So uh, <laughs> still. And actually, there, there's a town in Arkansas called Tonti Town, Arkansas, that was made up of entirely Italian immigrants when it started. And we'll get into you know, the disparate places where Northern Italians have gone, but um, that is the influence that Tonti actually had, which very few people know about. And an entire town in Arkansas, which is a part of the country that he explored, full of Northern Italian immigrants, brought over from Piemonte uh, to that area to farm it because they thought that the environment was uh, conducive to Piemonte's farmers, and they actually did very well there. Wow. John, that sounds like somewhere we got to do a greetings from Italian America. Oh, I would be there in a heartbeat. You know, Rosella, I have, I, I researched all these obscure locations where Northern Italians went, even uh, Waldensians, which are a group of Piemontese Protestants, John, who actually founded towns across the United States, starting with Valdese, North Carolina, and they worked their way west through Missouri and went all the way as far the first Italians in Utah were these Waldensians that forged an agreement with the Mormons and started an Italian colony in Utah. So there are a number of places where you can go to find really these disparate groups of Northern Italians across the country. I want to meet Italian Mormons before I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're out there. You can find some. They're largely the descendants of these Waldensians uh, that moved to Ogden, Utah. Well, but in my mind, I'm imagining an Italian version of the show, Big Love. <laughs> I want, and that, the guy that is at the center, like the polygamous Italian husband, you know, is probably the most miserable man in the world. <laughs> Imagine him being miserable. That's right. Venezuela. I can only handle one Italian wife. I'll tell you that much. I'll tell you an interesting connection between, how do you pronounce that right? Tony Town? I never pronounced it correctly. Tonti. Tonti. Tonti Town, Arkansas. The founding pastor, the Italian priest who took care of Tonti Town, Arkansas. He was the founder of Most Precious Blood in Manhattan. Wow. Because he was kind of like a maverick kind of guy. So he had had problems with his bishop in Italy. 
So the Bishop in Italy said, you know what? You're a really big headache. Yeah, I'll pay for your ticket. Why don't you go to New York? <laughs> New York was desperate for Italian-speaking priest. He comes to New York. He says, oh, there's Italians on Baxter Street. We should start a church. And basically walked into the bank and got the loan. And the bank just assumed that because they knew that the Catholic Church was very like a military organization, that he must have gotten approval from the archbishop. And he went and took out the loan to start out Most Precious, but without ever having told the chancery in New York. So he just didn't get along with Corrigan. And he packed up and he went out to Tontitown because they were having such a hard time in Arkansas. The Italian Catholics in Arkansas were not having an easy time. And so he went out there. So the founder of Most Precious Foot is buried out in Tontitown, Arkansas. That's amazing. I mean, you know, all kidding aside, we're locked up right now, so we're not filming any new episodes at the moment. But I know for the three of us, we've really enjoyed just the little trips we've been able to take with Greetings from Italian America, our web series that you can find on YouTube or on the Facebook page of our partners at ISDA. But we have been compiling these lists because, you know, there's a great book called Italian American Country by Paolo Battaglia. And it's really focused on these small communities, these historic enclaves and places that you don't expect them outside of the major eastern and western seaboard cities that have rich Italian histories and still maintain significant Italian populations. And there are so many of them across the country. And I have a theory that once you get west of the Appalachians, your percentage of northern Italians is a part of the total Italian population. It's going to increase until you get as far west as California, where it's estimated that between 60 and 80 percent of Italians are of northern Italian descent. But in between the Appalachians and California, there are these enclaves of northern Italians, many of which go back to the 1860s, the 1870s, scattered across the entire country and including points in the west of the United States where you would not typically think of Italians being. Uh, My own family is an example of that. My maternal grandmother was born in Virginia City, Nevada, and my great-grandparents were married in 1896, I believe, in Nevada, in the one Catholic church that there was in Virginia City, which is now (laughs) a a ghost town. Um, But uh, at that time, there was a large Italian contingent that had come to support the uh, Comstock Lode, the silver mines in Nevada. And in fact, anywhere where you find mining activity, you're going to find Italians. But that's just one example of Italians in the West. I mean, you know, I found one town in Oklahoma that claims to be the little Italy of Oklahoma, Krebs, Oklahoma, that has apparently Italian markets and a plethora of Italian restaurants. So you find these places because Italians from Northern Italy did move West rapidly. And as I say, in California, by the 1870s, you have a significant Italian population. And by the early 1900s, you have Giannini, who really um, funded uh, the rebuilding of San Francisco after the great earthquake in 1906. And then you have the Italians that started the wine industry uh, in California, all Northern Italians, starting with Sbarbaro, the founder of Italian Swiss colony. He was a great visionary who wanted to try and replicate a whole Italian village life in Northern California. But he started essentially much of the wine industry uh, in that part of the country and then was followed by all of the other uh, Italian uh, winemakers in that area, largely from Northern Italy. So you do see this westward migration of Northern Italians across the country. And it's also interesting if you delve further in, there were six Italians that served with Custer in the 7th Cavalry uh, Regiment at the time of Custer's last stand. Five of the six were from Northern Italy, but the bugler 
uh, was a, um, a man by the name of Martino was his uh, surname. It was uh, shortened to Martin, uh, but he was, uh, I, I believe, from somewhere in, in Campania, I think around Salerno. He was from Sal Consolina. There you go. <laughs> he died in 1928. Yes. Martino. They actually went back to Sal Gonzalina and there was no record of him. And what they found out was that he was an orphan. He was abandoned and he was brought to the Municipio and he was brought to him on the Feast of St. John Chrysostom. And that's how he got the name John Chrysostom Martino. Wow. He actually was an orphan from the Val di Diano. And again, it's my theory that the people from the Val di Diano were the first Southern Italians in New York. But let me say something, Bob. I want to highlight this. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to give you a fact pattern and ask you a question. Before the Holland Tunnel, Jersey and Hoboken were contiguous. And without the border, that was the Holland Tunnel. The Italian communities were very fluid and very much the same. And the first Italians in Hoboken were from Genoa. No question about it. And they also were in Jersey City. Uh, we know about the time of the American Civil War, there were cigar rollers in Jersey City. They formed the Italian parish of St. Francis, which was a Genovese parish, 100%. That when the people from the Val di Diano, the Salerno people, came in the 1880s, the Genovese would not allow them to go to Genovese church. And so they had to form a separate Italian church for Southern Italian. There's a book that came out, The Lost Ravioli Recipes of Hoboken. And I would love to have the author on the show one time. And one thing that she highlights that I think was very true of the Italian experience, at least in Hoboken and Jersey City, is that when the Southern Italians came, the people from Genoa, the Ligurians had wanted nothing to do with them. And when they began to intermarry, they did not intermarry Southern Italians. They first intermarried with the Irish because they preferred to intermarry with the Irish over the Southern Italians. And they're ravioli people. They make something called ping. It's a ravioli stuffing that they make. Sometimes they make it with cream cheese and chopped meat and became their signature food. But they did very well financially in northern New Jersey. And the, the, the question I, I pose to Bob is, if I think of California, I do think of California as northern Italy. The same way you think of, I think of New Orleans as Sicilian. And St. Louis, I think of Lombardia because yes. St. Louis had, um, you know, uh, Tommy Gosorder. I mean, I, I, was it Tom, was Tommy? No, it was, uh, it was uh, Graziola and uh, Yogi Berra, Yogi both Barra. from the Italian neighborhood called The Hill in St. Louis, uh, which um, is the predominant Italian neighborhood there, but primarily composed of Italians, as you say, from Lombardia, and both of them were examples of that. And also, the church is St. Ambrose in St. Louis, and what St. Ambrose is to Milan, what San Gennaro is to Naples. Yeah. So I highlight the fact that there wasn't a lot of interconnectedness with the northern italians and the southern italians do you feel and i know your wife is also northern italian do you feel as a northern italian growing up in chicago that there was a disconnect from the greater italian american community because you culturally are very different from southern italians i would say there was um you know my mother uh, although she was born in italy in lucca um immigrated to uh, a, a neighborhood in Chicago that was completely comprised of Tuscans. There was little Tuscany, and that was a very different neighborhood 
uh, from the Taylor Street neighborhood in Chicago, which was primarily Southern Italian. So there was uh, a disconnect. But by the time I was born, um, I also lived in a very Italian suburb of Chicago, but it was predominantly Southern Italian. So I, I grew up with Southern Italians all around me. And, you know, I, in thinking about this episode and envisioning this question coming up, you know, I, the way I was raised, I, I don't know that it was particularly different from the way my Southern Italian neighbors were raised other than, you know, we didn't eat as much fish. We certainly didn't eat fish on Christmas Eve, again, much to John's displeasure. Um, but uh, and again, we didn't eat a lot of polenta either. Um, so, uh, um, you know, it was essentially at that time a very Italian upbringing. I think I had a better sense, though, of my heritage than a lot of my Southern Italian friends. But that probably had more to do with the fact that my mother uh, throughout the uh, 1950s worked in the Italian consulate, and I had much more of a developed sense of what it meant to be an Italian from civic standpoint than many others for whom being Italian meant just eating Italian and you know, going to church on Sunday. Um, I had probably a more developed sense of, of what it meant to be Italian, but I don't ascribe that inherently to being Northern Italian. So to answer your question, I think by the time, you know, the growing up in the 70s and, and 80s, um, there had been an, an amalgamation of what it meant. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, I don't like to play into this North-South divide. Um, I want to see a larger Italy not a smaller Italy. I, in my fantasy world, Italy uh, has uh, Nice and Corsica and Savoy and Dalmatia and Istria uh, back in it. So I don't want to see it divided. And I think that what unites Italian Americans um, far exceeds what divides them. It's, it's interesting that in this country, you know, we always talk about Italian unification and the famous quote, you know, we have made Italy, now we have to make Italians. And I really feel like by the time we hit the Second World War, the Italian population in this country, the Italian-American community, really does begin to break down those barriers, in not just North versus South, but you know regions as well. Because I grew up in a family where I had family from Puglia that didn't want to associate with family from Sicily, and they lived on different blocks and different buildings, and it was these very uh, fine and specific borders that they put up themselves. But in the boom of Italian pride in really the late 60s, early 70s, into the 80s, that era that we constantly talk about, particularly the three of us on this show, as sort of a golden age of the Italian arrival, the sense of being from just Italy starts to permeate here, even more so than it does in Italy. It's interesting that now, as we delve into the world of you know DNA genealogy and family trees, and Italy has seen from the early 90s, the rise of the Northern League, and then you have this Southern reaction and Pino Aprile and Teroni and this new identification. It's almost like we've sort of dipped and we're rising back into a different regional mindset again as people begin to discern more specifically their roots and, and people who couldn't tell you where they came from because they've been here for so many generations now are starting to rediscover that history and the locality and partake in this genealogical tourism and heritage travel and things like that. It's interesting to think that we almost are, that our community had at this point for you know, 40, 50 years, sort of the peak of any sense of shared Italianism really in the world. 
reassuringly, though, I, I will have to say that at least the Northern League has dropped its uh, secessionist platform. And, and so even there, I think that there is a greater sense of Italian patriotism. And I don't think that's a bad thing, especially coming out of this whole coronavirus situation. I think there is a renewed sense of pride. And I think the Italians certainly handled themselves, um, you know, as a great example, a model to be held up for other nations because they, they endured the longest uh, sequestration and, and really did it in a very admirable fashion without a, a lot of problems. That's true. Italians do fantastic in times of disaster. Italy was made for disaster mode. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. That's why I mean, like, um, a friend of mine in Piano di Sorrento, he made a comment, roughly translated as, my family could endure 10 years of hard warfare and still not make a dent in our cantina. Like, <laughs> the food so like, when everybody was out panicking to buy food, he's like, we could just survive on 10 years of what we have in the basement. <laughs> and, you know, that's because Italians are prepared for emergencies. <laughs> But let me ask you this, Bob. So you bring up the fact that we didn't eat fish on Christmas Eve. I love eating in the north of Italy. I mean, you're not getting the same portion size as the south, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, I mean, I've had fantastic meals in the north of Italy. What is your comfort food? What is your Christmas food? What is your Easter food? What is your Sunday food? What was the plate that your mother made when you came home from school? Like, oh, wow, mom made that tonight. <laughs> Well, I, I will tell you that my comfort food is the very Neapolitan spaghetti with pomodoro sauce. Uh, that's my comfort wow. food. So again, that that shows um, a sense of being from across Italy and, and not just representing the North because uh, my comfort food is definitely, uh, you know, the hard Durham wheat pasta generally associated with the South. But I can remember my uh, Piemonte's grandmother who lived with us every Sunday, you know, um, being out tagliarini, the egg uh, pasta that was um, from Piemonte uh, that we had every Sunday. And so, again, uh, the customs were very similar in that sense, um, the, the big Sunday dinner to what you would have experienced anywhere throughout Italian Americana, no matter where you were from. Uh, from a culinary perspective, I always found it really, really interesting how um, the majority of Italian immigrants, especially in the, the Northeast, are from the South. But when they think of pasta, like making fresh pasta, they always imagine, uh, you know, an egg pasta. And that is like the standard of what they think. Oh, you, you're going to make fresh pasta, right? You're going to make the pasta with, uh, you need eggs, you need flour. And I was like, no, 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 that's actually not most pasta in Italy is hard durum wheat. You know, the most famous pasta, the most noticeable pasta, like from uh, Gragnano and Campania. Uh, especially the smaller cuts that everyone's familiar with, they're made with semolina and water. You know, eggs have nothing to do with it. I try try and tell them, you know, egg pasta is really for pappardelle, tagliatelle. Or um, tagliarine, as in Piemonte, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only shortcut that's really made with eggs is garganelli, but also a northern pasta. But, you know, they're, they're so deeply associated with southern Italianism except when it comes to fresh pasta, which is the foundation of Italian food. You know, they kind of have it mixed up. And I, and I don't understand where that comes from. Well, there are two culinary poles, in my opinion, in Italy. You have the northern culinary pole in Bologna and the southern culinary pole in Naples. And uh, they both have contributed magnificently to Italian cuisine. But to your point, they are different, for sure. Ro, how many nonna have you worked with over the course of your decade plus with the show? 
I, I honestly, I don't know the official number. You got a ballpark? Uh, nearly a hundred between, you know, all videos and presentations. And sometimes I would, you know, go to a city to do a festival and uh, probably interacted with, you know, cooked with about a hundred. Did you notice a disproportionate amount of North and South? Did you get a lot of Northern recipes? I just couldn't find them. Wow. <laughs> you have to come West. <laughs> west and you'll, you'll, you'll find plenty. It was hard. It, it's been hard to find them. I mean, I definitely, I have some pretty, I mean, my earlier videos are terrifying from a hair and makeup and production perspective. <laughs> That's when we did get a lot of the Northern ladies in. We had a, a wonderful lady uh, from uh, Liguria who made rabbit and pesto. I had a wonderful lady from Lombardia who made a great um, osobuco with the uh, risotto alla milanese. So I did get some really good content in those earlier years from the North, but we weren't really, you know, we were still shooting on like VHS cameras. Wow. So I feel bad for those episodes because I feel like the recipes weren't as well developed. You know, you have to like test the recipes and back then we, we just didn't have time to fully test stuff and, I didn't um, have my process of interviewing the nomna the way that I do now. So I remember it being a, a really big struggle to find a lady for, uh, from Northern Italy. And I would put out Facebook blasts. I would do the email blasts like, you know, can you make these things? Uh, are you, where are you from? And sometimes you would think you would get someone, but like the, it was just so far back that they, they were culturally Southern Italian because they had been here so long. Yeah. Um, and they did, they, they were honest. They were like, you know, I really don't remember any Northern recipes for my, my Nona and stuff. And I, but I really want to be on the show. So <laughs> cooking with Nona kind of had to evolve into um, a less regional kind of cooking show and more of just, you know, if you're a Nona, what do you make that makes your, your grandchildren smile? Um, and I had to do that more out of necessity than because it was what I wanted, because it was like the original vision I had for the show. It's interesting. My, my, my wife is half Abruzzese. Her mother is Tuscan with a little bit of Parma and Piacenza in uh, her ancestry. We'll take her. <laughs> yes, of course. And uh, I always found it fascinating to go over there because I had these assumptions about Italian Americanism and the cuisine and, you know, my mother-in-law cooks Tuscan food. And so when I go over for the holidays, like on New Year's Eve, we have, what do you call the sausage you guys have up there? Cotechino? Cotechino, right, yeah, yeah. Oh, quesquifo. Uh, <laughs> not, not your favorite? I love it. It's like, uh, to me, it's a great treat because I never had it growing up. And I remember Pat and I spending some time at my in-law's house with my wife's grandmother who came from Bani di Luca and she's like 92 now. She still cooks. As a matter of fact, we sent her, when quarantine started, we sent her an iPad to teach her to FaceTime. So we're FaceTiming with her now. It's amazing. Um, and she made us these amazing chestnut flour crepes. Yeah, that's very Tuscan. I love them. Yeah, Nietzsche, they call them. I, I, yeah, it, for me, that was like such a, an amazingly foreign dish when I met my, my, my wife 10, 11 years now. So I was in my 20s. But it was like, traveling to a new world, you know, <laughs> to have this really authentically Northern Italian American cuisine. And you do get it some places in California a little bit and things like that. And, I, you know, like you said, in pockets of the country where you don't picture a lot of Italian Americans, you tend to get Northerners. I was in 
Memphis, Tennessee, and their community has a significant Piemontese and Lucchese population. And they had these like Southern greens that were made in the style they would have been made in Luca and just fascinating stuff. And uh, I hope we can bring more and more of that out because there is a rich tapestry of regional influences in this country. And I know we're always talking about the South, but there's so much to be had. And, and you know, the, an interesting point to be made is how well these Northern Italians have succeeded beyond their numerical proportions uh, to the population. I mean, if you look at the Italian Americans in the West, I mean, they had a governor in Washington state that was an Italian American, Governor uh, Albert Rossellini, who was uh, of Tuscan descent, in 1957. Yeah. There were senators, U.S. senators, both of Northern Italian descent from both New Mexico and Arizona in the 1970s. Uh, Pete Domenici, whose uh, family was from Modena, and Dennis DiCantini, whose family was uh, Friulano. So these Italians in the West, I have a theory, succeeded because the Italians in the West were Yankees. They were the, the originals. I mean, when yeah. you have a community in California of 6,000 people by the time of statehood, then everybody else from the Anglo world that's coming afterwards are the recent immigrants. That's <laughs> very true. Were there first. So there was a general acceptance of these Italians much easier uh, in the West than there were uh, in the East in the, in the Great Migration, I think. And that was one of the reasons for, uh, for their success politically. I mean, you even have Italians succeeding in places like Kentucky, where there, where there was uh, Congressman Mazzoli, whose family was from Udine. I mean, you can go back to the first Italian governor, who was actually the governor of Mississippi in 1900, Governor Longino, Andrew Longino. Now, granted, his family had been in the U.S. Uh, since the time of uh, the Revolution, and he had, you know, through the intervening century, become a Protestant and was probably a lot more acceptable to the population in Mississippi. But there's still no getting over the fact that he was of Italian descent and still was able to be elected governor of Mississippi as far back as 1900, which is only a couple of years after the lynchings of, uh, of the Italians in New Orleans, as you well know. So I, I'm fascinated and, and pleased at the success of, uh, of what these Northern Italian politicians were, were able to achieve in the most um, interesting and one would say obscure from the Italian-American perspective portions of the country. My mother's uh, own cousin went on to be president of the Senate in Nevada, as well as Frank Sinatra's personal attorney. So again, another example of, uh, of these politicians succeeding uh, in, in the West of the United States much earlier than they had success in the, uh, in the East. Bob, you bring up a great point because you mentioned Frank Sinatra. People don't realize Frank Sinatra's mother was from the north of Italy. Yeah, Genovese. I don't think I even knew that myself. You didn't? <laughs> no, that's, that, that's one that I didn't know. Yeah, she was. That, that the northern Italians were successful in those arenas here at that time, especially, does not surprise me at all. I mean, they, they, I think their they're, um, they're natural, demure... Uh, you know, it's not a secret. Like they're a lot less ostentatious. Than I, agree, <laughs> I, I agree with Ro because they weren't. I agree with Ro. They culturally were much easier to fit into an Anglo-Saxon world than people from the south. Yeah, I, 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 emotional, I, ostentatious, outgoing. You know, jumping on caskets, screaming. You know, so all the, all that, that stuff. I think the Northern <laughs> Italians were standing there with their Anglo-Saxon friends saying these people are crazy. 
<laughs> much easier time assimilating just doesn't shock me I, I i just mentally it's like it's a it's a perfect fit like you know they blend you know like <laughs> And when uh, Marissa Tomei and, and he's like, oh, you stick out like a sword. Then she's like, oh, yeah, you blend, <laughs> you know, blend better than we do. We, we, where you'd hear us and be like, what? <laughs> so true. It is a very different personality on average. Before we go into the personality traits, and I, and I want to get into some of the specific stories and then communities in the next episode. We're going to leave this one here. We're going to come back in a few minutes on our end and bring you part two but thank you very much for joining us we hope those of you out there who are uh, the northern italians in our listenership are pleased by the first of these two episodes and uh, just know that we here at the italian american podcast we may be southern but we love you guys like cousins so thanks for listening and we'll be right back next week with more of the history of north and central italy here in the united states your life